Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. If, like me, your junior doctor experiences on surgical jobs were a major factor in you choosing general practice, I've got a trigger for warning for you. In today's episode, you're going to hear the voice of two surgeons. And what's more, we're going to be considering how GPs and surgeons might work together more, and picking up some clinical tips on those hernia ultrasounds that we love to request. I'm Tom Nolan, a GP in London and clinical editor at the BMJ. Uh, joining me today, as ever, is uh, Jenny. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Tom. I'm Jenny Rasanathan, a family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ. And someone who used to enjoy surgery or not so keen? <laughs> I think you said it well when you said that those of us <laughs> in general practice chose general practice for a reason. Okay, uh, and here's the the first of those two voices. It's uh, it's Clara. Uh, hi, Clara. Hi. Good morning, Tom. Morning, Jenny. Um, yeah, my name's Clara. I am a, a general surgeon in the northeast of England. Um, I'm also the editorial registrar here at the BMJ. So Tom has convinced me to share my pearls of wisdom about surgery with you all today. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Well. So many questions to ask you. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I mean, I wanted to, to touch on that, the, the traditional old fashioned view of surgical experiences that some people had. I mean, do, do you think um, that's changing or needs to change? I, I know you've written for the BMJ, <laughs> maybe not on this subject, but about diversity in, in surgery. Yeah. Is that, I and think, is that related to it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I. I was painfully naive, I think, when I went into medicine, uh, certainly when I went into surgery. Um, I came to the surgical party quite late. I was a foundation doctor, so it was my first year out of medical school. And I kind of thought, oh, actually, do you know what? I've just seen a woman being a surgeon. That's amazing. Maybe I could do that. Um, And I really hadn't considered it before because everyone at medical school wore rugby ties and was white and male and very laddie. And I just never really saw myself, weirdly, uh, in in that. Um, So, yeah, um, I think... And then having moved around to different places, I think as a trainee... It's really nice because you go to different units. So there are definitely some places and some specialties where that still really, really exists. Um, And there is very much an old boys club um, culture, I think, that kind of does run as a common thread through surgery. Um, I think that there are little pockets where that is starting to change. Um, There are departments I've been to that have been absolutely fantastic. Um, Tends to be where there's more female female consultants because I think... You know, once you get a couple of canaries in the coal mine, the other canaries start joining. And, you know, you do end up with with a more, I don't know, a more diverse department. And, and for me, that's that's where I'd want to work long term. Um, there's been a few kind of big things recently, like the Royal College of Surgeons, which is the sort of main professional body of surgeons in the UK. They've published a diversity report where they've really kind of held a mirror up to themselves and, and said, what can we do to change? Um I don't know. I feel I have mixed feelings. That I think I'm surprised that they were more sho- that they were so shocked by those findings because for me those right. were really obvious things that you know people perceive them as a white men's or white old man's club. Like I, I don't know. Yeah. For me that's kind of obvious. But um, so yeah. So I think it's changing, but it definitely hasn't changed yet. 
Clara, I really liked how you said, um, and then you saw a woman surgeon and you were like, oh, <laughs> they exist. I can do that. <laughs> that was really funny. I think, you know, it's interesting because so there are a lot of areas of medicine that are still kind of dominated by men. And, you know, the standard response that people would say to that is, well, there are rising numbers of female medical students, rising number of, you know, residents and graduates. Um, but still, the leadership roles tend to be um predominantly male, and then also certain specialties. And I think surgery is one of them that is predominantly male. Um, I remember as a medical student, our introduction to our surgery rotation was um, some men and one female surgeon. And the female surgeon basically cautioned us to make sure that we ate whenever we could because she hadn't experienced the feeling of being full in like seven years of work because she was constantly too busy to stop and eat. It wasn't exactly a ringing endorsement. So <laughs> yeah. it's not selling it, is it? No. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking, because uh, a couple of, going back to those um, times I'd rather forget as a junior doctor and med student, but there, there often were some, some women in, you know, in, in those departments, but still often very macho culture. Like it's, is there are those two things obviously overlap a lot but is there still a um, is there still a thing about culture and sort of trying to whether it's men or women in in those departments trying to um have a different culture or is it actually quite a good thing you don't want to lose too much of that because that's you know you need decisive people in surgery and maybe that goes with the territory yeah i mean this is something that i've thought about a lot over the last few years um i I wouldn't call it a crisis point, but I came kind of my last SHO year before I kind of stepped up. I really had to soul search and be like, is there a place for me in surgery? Because there is this like archetypal personality type um, and culture that I think people expect you to fit into. I think for me, one of the things that really worried me is that people used to say, you know, the surgical reg, you have to be like... I, I don't know if there's a better word for it, but a bit of a bitch, basically. And I really, you know, I I just, I, I really resisted being like, can I not just be who I am as a person without having to be more manly or, you know, be more um, assertive or be more nasty to the juniors? Like, does that mean that I can't be a good surgeon? Um, or, you know, I... Oh yeah, probably kind of come across already in this podcast, but I I talk a lot and uh, I definitely have a personality, and people were like, oh no, that that's not going to fit in, in surgery. You know, like you just have to kind of get your head down and be really, kind of be one of the boys. Um and yeah, and so I think I think actually that's doing a massive disservice. So I think you know you can have women in surgery but if all the women you have in surgery are just trying to be like the boys so even when they have kids they like pretend they don't have kids and oh I don't even love my children I don't even love my husband you know I hate all the juniors you know that's that's so damaging because actually what you're then saying is be someone that's not yourself uh, otherwise we're not going to accept you and you really have to I think push against the edges of that mold to 
to change the culture. And that's not always easy. Like sometimes it's just easier to be like, oh, I'll laugh along at this really inappropriate joke about another woman because mm. do you know what? I can't be bothered to fight this. But actually, I think I've really had to reflect that the more you do that, the more that culture continues. And actually it is part of your job, if you like, as somebody in a minority group in any specialty to call that out. And that's really hard. Um, So... Yeah, I think changing the culture is not something you can do overnight. Um, I think you kind of have to be comfortable with the fact that you're going to kind of put yourself, put your head above the parapet a bit and yeah. make things a bit uncomfortable for yourself. But hmm. ultimately, it's like, it's like I hope that's the right thing. <laughs> maybe maybe you should have like a, a, a warm, fluffy GP assigned to every surgical team <laughs> who's just there to... <laughs> to just like stroke just... everyone. Be like, you're okay. <laughs> Slash... To be there to remind people of like social determinants of health, community medicine, oh, yeah, exactly. like the actual family members of the patient, different things. Um, yeah, and I mean, I think there are there are those people coming through, and they they are they make incredible surgeons. You do have to be decisive. You do have to be very type A. Like all of those things are kind of things that make you you know, you have to be a bit restless, you have to not be able to sit still, you know, those are things that will make you a better surgeon. But that doesn't have to be everything, you know. Hmm. Well, let's talk a bit more about what we're going to cover today in the, in the podcast. So we've, um, well, I've interviewed uh, a surgeon, another surgeon, that's your second voice that you're going to hear. Uh, another one who I think is very the opposite counter to, the, to that um, old boys club shall we say or, or that that stereotype of the, the traditional surgeon the surgeon that you've worked with Clara so you've kindly uh, recommended uh, Sarah Robinson and she, and she works up in Northumbria uh, and which is where you are I think or near 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 if you can start us with a bit of a geography lesson like <laughs> uh, is it so north of Newcastle in England I hope you cut this bit because like, my geography is terrible um but basically yeah it's north of Newcastle south of the Scottish border. It's a yeah. huge area. Um, so, yeah, therein Thank lies you. its own challenges. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think we'll hear a bit, a bit more about those uh, in, in the first part of the interview where, um, so, well, we, yeah, say hello to, to Sarah and hear about some of the challenges of working as a surgeon in Northumbria, but also what's changed during COVID. And then I think we move on to um, revealing my ignorance about hernias. So <laughs> should, we, should we take a listen? Let's. Okay. Hello, I'm Sarah Robinson. I'm an upper GI surgeon in the Northumbria Trust, which is a uh, large trust covering about half a million population and is the most geographically disparate um, hospital trust in the country, which has its challenges. The, there's been various aspects to COVID, which I think sort of shaken everybody up and made us all think about what we um, thought and perceived to be the benefits of our existence. And I'm sure there's many surgeons and many hospital clinicians generally who think that the patients are really um, lucky and really enjoy coming to see us in hospital but my experience has been um, quite different particularly because of COVID or rather my paradigm has shifted because of COVID and having converted over to a lot of telephone consultations because I deal with the most geographically remote part of Northumbria um, so sometimes my patients have traveled for 40 or 50 minutes to come and see me um, and 
whilst lots of them still want to do that, there's an increasing number, and particularly the younger people with jobs, who it's much easier for them if they can just have a conversation with me over the phone. Um, so I have had people uh, nipping into a, the stationary cupboard to examine their groins to uh, tell me the, the size of their hernias for example and you can actually glean an awful lot of information and some people then has, have to say yes I need to see you face to face but actually a lot of stuff can be done just on the telephone talking to people and that's saved I believe our trust has saved over a million um travel miles as a result of COVID and increasingly undertaking um, teleconference um, uh, remote access clinics um, and also just straightforward telephone clinics, which is the facility that I've used. I'm so IT illiterate that actually the least complex method is the best for me. So the telephone works well. And, and on the whole, I'd say people have found it really beneficial. I think um, there are some downsides to it, but on the whole, the positives I'd say is um, you know, people are very open and honest because they're feeling very relaxed and um, they're in their own environment. I have quite a few of them stop, put the kettle on and make a cup of tea as we start talking. And I genuinely don't mind any of that because if somebody's more relaxed, they're going to give me a much more um, open and honest um, impression of what they perceive as the problem and what I might be able to do about it. I think one of the big things for me has been the ease with which I think people have increasingly said, no, they don't want to have an operation. And I think that because they're not actually face to face with me, it's easier to say no, they don't feel like they're letting me down by not operating. I mean, I've got a, a relatively long waiting list now, so I'm never disappointed if somebody doesn't want an operation. Um, but Nevertheless, I think it just makes it a little bit less confrontational for them. So it's easier. And whilst I would never have seen that as a benefit prior to COVID and going over to a lot of telephone clinics, I genuinely think it's yeah. been useful. So it's interesting to hear you say that actually you, you, you don't necessarily need to examine the patient. Like I would have thought like as a as surgeon, so my, my stereotype of the surgeon is, you know, that's the one thing they want to do the most is put their hand on and feel that hernia and, you know, make various... Uh, uh, decisions based on their examination one of the things that um is an irritation to me about the system that we all work in is that we get patients referred and then they see us in a clinic and then we ask for tests well i could tell they needed those tests looking at mm. the referral letter so when i triage I'll send the patient a letter saying, I'm actually asking for you to have an MRI scan if you've got any metal worth in my secretary, because we'll need to rethink, or you'll need this CT scan, or you need pH and manometry testing. So I'll get that first before actually mm. seeing the patient. And that was partly as a, uh, the influence of the fact that my patients had often traveled a very long way. Um, and I can give an awful lot of information over the phone, direct them to um, good websites or to you know, send them out information leaflets with the, the letter that comes out of this. And it just saves patients a trip. I mean, it's, it's not a privilege for them to have to come and see us. I feel humbled that they want to come and see us and or feel that, they, that there's something that we might be able to do. And sometimes I think the old system of um, bringing patients backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, it's really not beneficial. It's just something that we've always done. Um, so I'd already started to put things like that in place in my practice. So it wasn't a massive leap to do that with COVID. And it's not that, and I don't need to see absolutely everybody in my clinic. Um, some of them it's easier. So for example, we get referred a lot of diverification of the recti as hernias. 
And I'm not going to operate on that, but sometimes the patient is just so convinced that they've got a hernia because understandably they've been, they think that because they've got a bulge and they looked it up on the internet. And, <laughs> and I, I don't know what it's like elsewhere, but it's certainly in Newcastle, um, a lot of the medical students have had very little exposure to surgery and you mm. could potentially have no exposure to general surgery in your two foundation jobs. So it's unrealistic to expect subsequent GPs that have gone through that system to yeah. have had exposure to these sorts of things. So we so need what, to be mindful of that. Pause. So let's pause there for a second. What, what, what should we be doing where we suspect that or I guess we're not sure ourselves what's going so, on? Do we just need to ultrasound? And, and then, no, no. So ultrasound's not... No, not very helpful at all. So no. in fact, in our trust, we've actually stopped ultrasounds for um, hernias. So, uh, oh so, they, <laughs> so that's, which is a massive CIP and something GPs might want to consider putting forward to their CCGs, but um, it causes an awful lot of problems because often they'll say, oh, we think there is a hernia on the ultrasound and then we'll, they'll end up having a laparoscopy and there's no hernia there. They haven't got a hernia. And, um, that's, so that's an unnecessary thing. And actually, when you've examined those patients, you probably didn't think that they had a hernia, but they're so adamant they've got a hernia and they have got this investigation that's proven to them that they have. And so that can actually, it can actually create an awful lot of problems. Now, that's not to say we don't ever go on to get ultrasounds or CTs, but a CT or an MRI is probably going to be much better and give us much more information. So stopping doing all of those ultrasounds and... I'm a big, I have a big thing about distributive justice. So if you do an ultrasound on somebody for a hernia and that's not necessary and doesn't actually help us and in many ways is actually disadvantageous, mm -hmm. somebody else who is gonna benefit from that ultrasound isn't getting it. And yeah. it's just, we've slipped into many of these ways without really thinking of the yeah. advantages and disadvantages. So we yeah. don't do them in our trust now. So just so I got that right in my head, because this is really mm -hmm. useful. Uh, yeah. It's a common thing, you know, I, like I feel like I've got the hernia or I can't really feel the hernia, but let's get an ultrasound. That That's completely wrong. Like you, yeah. you might find a hernia on an ultrasound, but it's not one not that Not necessarily would... a hernia, no. Yeah. So it might okay. be a cord li lipoma or something like that. And it, it's, we just get lots and lots of false negatives. Yeah. And like everything, it, it's only as good as the the technician performing the test. Sure. And if it's somebody that's not used to looking for them, you really need to have a really senior stenographer, um, stenographer doing these and ultrasonographer, and you don't always get that. And yeah. Um, but what do we say back to the patient? So, so, um, you know, so we won't do an ultrasound, and that's because actually, if we can't feel one, then it's kind of it doesn't matter whether there's a tiny hernia or not. Yeah. And so, so you know, you guys are so we've, we're very behind the curve in comparison to GPs and safety netting. I think it's mm. something that we're improving in. But you know, that's that the whole safety netting. That if you do start mm. to feel a lump, mm. and if they're really adamant, those are the cases we can help you with, and we can examine them. And we may end up getting an MRI or a CT, for example. But that's usually the exception rather than the rule. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we might get some advice that we can use our advice and guidance or just to refer to you but but don't do an ultrasound so so to, <laughs> yes exactly so to be honest advice and guidance there is probably not that's probably the one point where advice and guidance isn't useful because those would be the cases that actually examining the patient so not all patients need to be examined I don't personally feel with hernia some of them it's really obvious from what they're described to you and you don't need to physically see them face to face um but those would be the ones where you 
would benefit from a face-to-face -face consultation because you can examine them in detail, you're used to doing it, and um, that just can give uh, the referring clinician that extra um, support that, yeah. yes, they're absolutely right, this wasn't a hernia. Yeah, obviously, I got quite uh, uh, excited there about <laughs> ultrasounds and uh, and things. Uh, Jenny, I mean, do, do you did you know that already, or was or would be helpful to, to make me feel better that I didn't know that? I'm not sure this is going to make you feel better. <sighs> I, I I would never <laughs> order an ultrasound for hernia. <laughs> yes, Jenny. <laughs> That's just not what I learned. But um, yeah, well, I. I Sorry. It's okay. It's okay. We've only got a few hundred <laughs> listeners. <laughs> It'll be fine. Um, oh, Clara, you can help me out. I mean, you, this this happens a lot, though, doesn't it? I suppose you, it doesn't happen in the in the northeast because you you won't let let it happen. But um, um yeah, no, but we still get referrals all the time mm. with like we've found an ultrasound, we've done an ultrasound, and we've found a hernia, and you're like, but you can't feel anything. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I don't. I've stopped becoming frustrated with like GPs, like individuals about it or like referring doctors, because this is definitely to do with, I think it partly is to do with like lack of education about how to manage certain things. But I think also like surgeons do it as well. There's the classic anecdote about like, oh, we phoned the surgical reg and we had this, you know, classic patient that they needed to see and blah, blah, blah. And they just said, get a CT. Um, and that's always the joke about surgeons that, you know, they would CT somebody to find anything. And I think that we'd just become a bit obsessed in surgery now that imaging is always the mm. answer. Mm. It's often the answer, but it's it's not always mm -hmm. the answer. Um, and I don't know if it comes from like defensive practice, like people are worried they've missed something or they're not confident with examining for certain things like groin lumps. Um, mm. Or maybe they just don't understand, maybe they're, you know, actually doing an ultrasound sometimes can cause uh, more confusion rather than less. But yeah, I think it plays into like a bigger problem rather than it just being about this one thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with that, and well, I suppose we see it ev everywhere, don't we? That, um, well, patients and doctors and generally the, the investigation, the scan trumps the, the assessment, doesn't it? Um, which... Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I worry, I think, sometimes. And I, I, I don't know, having talked to a few friends who have gone over to the US, I think uh -huh. it's almost more of a problem there, um, where, like, imaging is just so freely available. Not freely available, actually, famously, but, like, it's so readily available. Um, I mean, depending, that, right? Like, <laughs> if, if you're a primary yeah. care doctor and you're, you know, taking uninsured patients, imaging, I yeah. mean, the number of hours I have spent on the phone with insurance companies trying to justify an MRI for a patient, right? Like, <laughs> is that what yeah, you do? Is, so that, is that is that what GPs do in the US? I mean, you're t you're, t you're talking to insurers, and it's uh, it's it's so painful. Like, you get done with your whole day, and then you have a prior authorization, is what they call it, where you know, the doctor has to fill out whatever kind of paperwork sometimes requires a phone call, sometimes requires writing a letter to justify. And you have to just go through and just fight for mm. the patient to get the imaging that they need. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty challenging. It's crazy. Mm. I mean, not it's in like all a, cases, but for yeah. the more expensive 
um, imaging modalities, certainly. Yeah, I'm glad I'm not there. I'd be like, Dr. Nolan, we will not be doing this ultrasound for this hernia. <laughs> Please stop requesting them. <laughs> no, they're not that, they're not nearly that polite. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. I mean, I suppose we have like, I guess, Tom, you don't have to talk to radiologists that often, but like for us as surgeons, like the radiologists are the gatekeepers to any imaging usually. Um, and there's varying degrees, yeah. you know, but you don't just order a CT and it happens. Um, yeah. You kind of still have to justify it. Um, people's justification, I think, varies in its quality, but um, I, I probably shouldn't say that, should I? That's true, that's true. Um, I, 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 going back to the first part of that, um, I mean, that thing about going backwards and forwards really um, makes sense, doesn't it? That, that, that's not in anyone's interest, really, is it? Yeah, I think, like, uh, what Sarah said about the communication being such an important thing like it it, it's like teaching granny to suck eggs isn't it like oh we just need to talk more but I think we really do like (laughs) when we have good quality conversations Mm. the you know the the best you know the best kind of patient outcomes for complex patients I've had are when someone's just picked up the phone and asked and it's not been like I sent you a letter you sent me a letter back I sent you another letter Um, (laughs) and you end up in this like terrible cycle of back and forth letter writing that become more and more passive aggressive like, as time goes on just think like if you do just remember why are we here oh we're here to look after patients of course like let's just pick up the phone and talk oh it sounds like you've been very well trained by by sarah because that's actually what we talk about in our next clip and that's coming up after this from our sponsors when you're a gp you're not just nine to five Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you, with expert medico-legal advice, including 24-7 in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. Let's go back to my conversation with Sarah, where I asked about communication between GPs and surgeons. It's it's very easy for me. I've had a filtered cohort of patients that come through nearly always of the right discipline to me. Um, And I have more time with the patients. So it's easy for me on the odd occasion where it isn't the right thing to work that out. Um, And so I think, thank God, because I couldn't do it. I don't know how you do it. And um, one of the things I I think is sad is the fact that the relationships between um, 
primary and secondary care. It's not that they've broken down, but they've just become much more remote. Um, and it's very letters, email, hardly ever emails even, but lots of letters um, and referrals. And that's not the GP fault. That's the, the system that we've been forced to work in. And I just think that there's an awful lot of nuance and an awful lot of um, knowledge that isn't then um, shared about patients. And the when we, um, before COVID, I'd started to really feel very, very aware of this sort of thing. And so one of the sites I work on is, um, has two GP practices on it in a um, nice market town called Annick. And there's a little cottage hospital there, which I do endoscopies and day cases and clinics in. An example that I can give you is a, a, a really complex um, man was referred in on a two week wait. And it, it just seemed like there was so much more to what was going on. And I was sure there would be so much more knowledge about the patients that would actually make my hope was um, coming into hospital an awful lot less stressful and if possible, avoiding him needing to come in at all if we could. Um, and actually, I just between endoscopies, this patient hadn't arrived. Um, I just whizzed across the car park and fortuitously was able to actually sit with the, the GP. And, and she was she was a little embarrassed actually. And I, she really shouldn't have been embarrassed at all. It was just that I just felt that we should talk about it. And she actually herself said, this is so much better when we actually just have a conversation about the patient. And if I just thought about it, I could have just done this. I was like, well, nearly every Monday, I'm just up the hill. Come and either give me a phone or come and talk to me. I'm very happy for, to be contacted. Um, but I think we've all become rather siloed and I've had lots and lots of conversations um, increasingly about you know, healthcare plans, um, which is an awful lot of documentation and responsibility for general practitioners to carry, particularly when you're not necessarily, if, it, if you've been out of um, hospital practice for 10 plus years, knowing everything that we potentially could or couldn't do isn't, it's not within your gift to make all of those decisions, I don't think. So having a conversation, it always feels like it's going to be a real effort, but it, it never is. And actually, it's a bit like smiling at people at work and they smile back. It makes the day a better place. And actually having a conversation with an educated, informed and other intelligent person that we can actually do a lot of good for patients is so valuable and saves so much of the patient's time, but also actually of both the GPs and the hospital doctor's time. And yeah. I think we've lost that gift, but it's still within our gift to recreate that. Um, it's just often it's it's perceived to be a lot harder yeah. work. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, that's music to, to my ears. It's lovely to, to hear that. And uh, I, I just thinking though, like, like the, the, the systems that have been created to try to improve communication between GPs and surgeons or other secondary care uh, specialists. Do you think they kind of missed that point then? Because they've got advice and guidance, but it's still very anonymous. We've got this thing, we've got this thing called Consultant Connect, where you can speak to a consultant in any specialty, which is great. But I'd much rather, you know, if, I, if you were my local surgeon, so speak to you um, rather mm -hmm. than, you know, it's not just about speaking to a specialist. I think there is something about knowing the specialist or, or having having some relationship. I totally agree and you, you build a bond and then um, for example and, and if we all hop back to our um, house officer days or foundation doctor days 
we all knew that there were certain consultants that you just wouldn't dare phone and it, or it would be pointless to phone. And that was both in medicine and in surgery. Um, and, you know, you would, or certain registrars, for example, and, and that hasn't changed. So it might be that I mm. either have a grumpy GP to deal with or the GP has a grumpy surgeon to deal with. And that might not be beneficial, but I think we tend to have these stereotypes and we tend to think that it's all just going to be too awkward. And often the systems do make it awkward. Mm. Um, and the then for I think the other aspect is is just that that there's a lack of sort of mutual understanding of the constraints of each other's working lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me to make an appointment for a patient, I mean, I get um, literally uh, the sort of the third degree by the contact centre as to how did I put this patient into my clinic? I mean, I think they think I must have the biggest, widest family in Northumberland that I'm just hoovering into my own clinics to get them sorted out. It's not entirely certain what they think I'm up to, what Machiavellian plans there are, but to actually get patients into our system without them having gone through that referral process can be very uh, obstructive. And Mm. um, so that can, I can understand why that puts some of my colleagues off doing it, but you know it's it's so much nicer and better for patients and we need to remember that yeah. and remember why we actually did this job and I think that sometimes that gets forgotten yeah and on, on the whole we're, we're sociable beasts and we we do better when we actually just communicate to each other so often the problems are because we don't communicate in an effective yeah. manner yeah and I, I don't think most of the systems are set up to allow us to achieve that so it becomes a very lazy easy excuse to just not bother Uh, Cara, I'd like to ask you one thing, actually. I I know surgeons are very, well, the surgeons I've worked with are always very keen post-operatively, if there's any problems, to to sort of hear about it. Uh, uh, But that is probably the place where I have the most contact with surgeons, is sort of a post-op patient. I'm I'm never quite sure where the line is between, you know, the GP, you know, you follow this up and, and go back to the team. Can you help us out there? Would you always want to know if it's a patient you've operated on? Or would you rather we did a bit more? Oh, uh, big question. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's so dependent, isn't it? Depends on when the operation was, uh, what the operation was. <clears throat> um, I think, as a general rule, most surgeons, uh, I hope I don't get shot down for this, um, if they've operated on a patient and something isn't right afterwards, they would rather know sooner rather than later. And I guess part of that comes with the fact that like, if you've been inside, for me, if you've been inside their abdomen um, and you've done an operation, only you really know. I mean, you can take pictures and you can write the op note and you can document, but you know, only you really know what's gone on in there or maybe the assistant. And so if your patient comes back and they've got some really weird complaint, you know, and you thought, maybe there was a bit of bleeding at the end, like maybe, or, you know, quite the converse, like everything went really, really smoothly. This doesn't make any sense. It's it's kind of only you really have that mm. operate, have that knowledge, even mm. if you've... Um, even if you've done your due diligence with, with your documentation. So... So for me, um, and yeah. I'm still at a fairly junior level, I would definitely, um, I'd rather see a patient and be reassured than than not hear about it and just yeah. go on and on and on and yeah. But Thank I, you. sorry, 
Okay. But I have to think that this eagerness for feedback is kind of not unique to surgeons and not unique to that period of time. And it kind of gets at, I think, what you and Sarah were talking about a little bit earlier, Tom, and then, you know, the way that she said, you know, so nicely about the importance of having an open conversation and just approaching people and not having, not putting up your own silos that limit you from reaching out to somebody. And actually, I'd be so grateful if, you know, there was um, a surgeon or any other specialist that I was consulting and they got back to me and either said, hey, this is what happened, your patient's fine, or um, actually, like, you should have done this or that wasn't an appropriate consultation or this imaging would have been great. Like any kind of open feedback, dialogue, conversation related to patient care, related to how to go, how to, you know, work together going forward would just be so appreciated. Like it'd be just like a huge casting a line and giving someone a hand up. And I just, I just think that would be fantastic. It's, it's happened a couple times, but we need more of that. Mm. Yeah. One thing yeah. that really annoys me, if we, let's move on to things that annoy us. Uh, uh, on, <laughs> <laughs> on the letters, uh, yeah, because it's always letters, isn't it? It's like uh, the letters you get back from, from secondary care, uh, where they don't actually give you any easy means of, of contacting them. You know, it's like, here's a number which when you call, nobody answers, or, you know, I, I wish I, I should probably put on my referral letters actually my own email address. I should probably start doing that, but it's so helpful when actually you have a direct line or or the email address of the the person who's written to you, because uh, you know Sarah's there saying, "Well, isn't it great to pick up the phone?" and and it is, but it's not great to pick up the phone when you spend half an hour trying to get through to that person and then give up, and then you think, oh, "I'm not doing that again. I'll just write them a, a, a passive aggressive letter instead." Yeah, I will say this was one thing that was. <laughs> amazing about practicing in Phnom Penh, not the passive aggressive letters, but actually that the community of doctors treating kind of the expat population um, and the patient population that we saw there, um, which was roughly 70% expat, 30% um, Khmer families, was just that Everyone was on WhatsApp or an email group together. Um, and, you know, we were always kind of like open network. Does anybody offer this service? Where can I get this for a patient? Um, you know, and I, I, I remember having the WhatsApp for an OB that was working in Phnom Penh. And I could say, hey, can you can you do an ultrasound for this patient's like uh, pregnancy scan, whatever? And it was so lovely. Um, and I think for whatever reason, when you're in a, I don't know, um, less tight knit community, it can be really difficult. It's like less personal and, and, you know, everyone's so busy and, and it's, it's hard to find the time to build those relationships with people, um, in other specialties. I think we get so worried about, I don't know, this is certainly true in the NHS, I'm not sure if it's true of other health systems. We're so worried about overloading people or overloading ourselves that we don't open those channels of communication. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, shift work comes into it as well. Um, So if you're a registrar and you're on call Monday to Thursday, it seems to me completely mad that then like, 
you know, there isn't really any formal handover between you and the person that's then coming on on Friday. It's all just notes and letters and so much nuance is lost in that. Um, and I think what you said, Tom, about like, oh, can I not just pick up the phone? You know, for, until probably two years ago, I had never sent an email to a GP and a GP had never sent an email to me. It was faxes and like these like pre-written sort of discharge letters. And to me, I think as somebody who's really impatient and someone who likes to talk, um, I was just like, why can I not just pick up the phone and ask this person the question? Like, why am I sending them a fax that I have to wait three days for that turns out didn't actually arrive because it's a fax? Um, you know, we might as well send telegrams at the, the speed that these things go. And actually, I think people do that because they're like, oh, well, we don't want to get too many phone calls or, you know, we don't, we don't you know be overwhelmed because these gps will be calling us all the time Mm -hmm. and actually it's absolute rubbish the gps are not wanting to call you as a surgeon too much because actually you're creating more work by by disrupting those channels of communication Mm -hmm. than you are by keeping them open and i think that's the thing i find so frustrating Mm. um and i imagine gps do as well Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, that's really nice. I think. Uh, yes. Oh, yes. Remaining so, tight-lipped okay. about that. <laughs> uh, so, Jenny, as a, as a GP who's trained and worked in the US, how does it work there? I mean, we, uh, is this just a, an NHS problem or w- what's your communication like between yourself and secondary care and referrals and that sort of thing? What you've been describing about the NHS is actually not that unfamiliar to me. Um I think things are more a systematic, kind of across trusts, across mm. practices. Um, and so probably things are a little bit more standardized. But um, when I did my training in the United States, we would refer electronically uh, over emails or um, through an online kind of referral program like system and and every kind of hospital system or academic center would have its own often electronic system for handling referrals um you know by the time that i was in training there was a lot more direct emailing back and forth with specialists um some are much happier to communicate and to answer questions and to kind of um convene about patient care than others. Um, Certainly as, you know, family medicine doctors, we would sometimes try to arrange kind of meetings of different specialists coming together with patients, with families, describing goals of care only in more severe circumstances, though. So like I said, it's not that dissimilar. Um, I think your system is probably more standardized across the country, but and ours is probably much more disorganized in that way. Um, you would occasionally see these kind of formulaic template letters back in the medical record um, from random offices, but um, I think it, mm. I think it's yeah pretty similar. Yeah. Okay. It's a. I think it's such an opportunity for learning as well, like having that communication. Um, patients that I've like sent off to the vascular center like i know one of my friends has a vascular wrench down there i'm like oh what happened to that patient that i sent down did i do the right thing did i not do the right thing you know and they're like oh clara that was a really bad idea that you did that um 
Actually, I don't think that's, I don't think that's happened, thankfully. But, you know, they'll, they'll say to me, it was good that you did that. This is what happened to them. This was their outcome. And I just think that level of, like, continuity and kind of completing mm-hmm. that circle of care as a clinician is really rewarding, but also just means that if you did something right or if you did something wrong, you, you that gets reflected back straight away. Um, and that's much quicker than, like, me, I don't know, being on my own call and getting these letters from GPs and being like, oh, why the hell have they referred this patient in? I'm so angry about this. Not actually ever telling anyone, not actually ever educating anyone on that. You know, it just the letters will keep coming. Um, I will keep being grumpy about it. The GPs will keep being grumpy at me when I do things. So, yeah, yeah I mean, in all of us, I think it's probably universal. All of us have come across trainees, um, house officers from other specialties, registrars who are pretty grumpy. I think we all have horror stories related to, no offense, the mean surgeon. You know, um, we've all been treated really poorly by someone who was overwhelmed and stressed and probably understaffed and overworked. Yeah, and I think so much of like, I mean, I would like to think that I'm always like really lovely and cool and always really nice and receptive. And I'm sure that there, you know, have been times where I haven't been. And generally those times have been when there is just you, you are the surgical reg on call and everything is your problem. Then, you know, you don't have someone, you you can't call your consultant about it because they're more important. Uh, The SHO is too junior. So it just ends up all coming to you and you... I don't know, it it causes an immense amount of frustration because you feel like, actually, I can't concentrate on the things that are really important because I'm too busy dealing with this piece of paperwork that for some reason only I can do. Um, And then a GP will call you about something really genuine and you're like, oh, I'm trying to do something else. Um, Yeah, and those are the things that I really, like when I'm driving home after my shifts, I'm like, oh, I hate that I did that. Like, I hate that I'm playing into the stereotype. Um, Thankfully, they don't happen that often. Uh, And I think it's a good thing that I feel bad about it. Um, Some of my colleagues maybe. (laughs) But um, I I couldn't possibly say. Um, Careful. But yeah, I think it's your bandwidth gets overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably the reason that people get grumpy most Mm -hmm. of the time. Uh, So, I mean, when you have got the surgeon on the phone, uh, it's... Uh, to me, I, I, want, I asked Sarah about, which is our final clip from from her, is actually how do we, how do I as a yeah a woolly GP let's say uh, actually have a, a useful conversation with with a surgeon who might be a very different character and, and like to to communicate differently to me. So I asked her, you know, how can how can we get the most out of those conversations? Can you give us some tips to, yeah, how should we, how to help us understand surgeons better? So I think one of the most useful um, sessions that I ever did was a, it was part of a management course as a registrar and it was the, the pyramid, um, those red, blue, green personalities. And it made me understand why literally pathologists would sort of turn into quivering wrecks as soon as I appeared. And um, why I might not necessarily get the best out of paediatricians when we were trying to put somebody onto their ward. And, and just the, that difference of opinion, uh, difference of approach rather, of, of different personalities works in all directions. Um, and so the antithesis of, and I suppose 
not to be too stereotypical, but surgeons are on the whole going to be red personalities and GPs are on the whole going to be much more likely to be blue personalities. And just that understanding of those different ways of approaching us. So most of us are, um, there's, a, there's a guy called Nigel Risner who, I, who came and presented on a management course and I read his book, It's a Zoo Out There. And actually that explained an awful lot of things for me and it was a very easy read and I would actually really recommend it. Mm -hmm. But it's that um, we have to remember that our often clipped, concise, get to the point, um, do they need an operation or not, is very off-putting for many, many people. But equally for us, if somebody is beating around the bush and is not, um, is being terribly, terribly polite and not actually asking the question that they want answered, that sort of drives us equally bonkers, just as we're sort of vaguely terrifying to those other people and probably elicits the, the less appealing aspects of our personality. <laughs> So the question is really useful and of what you actually want answering. But I would also say just that honesty of, um, I don't know. So going back to the hernia conversation, if I had a letter that just said, this patient's convinced they've got a hernia, I really can't detect one when I'm examining them. I'd be really grateful if you would have a look at them and um, see if you think they do. And if they do, whether you think they need an operation. And are they on any blood thinners that are going to stop me operating? That's really all I need. <laughs> Whereas it might not necessarily seem that that's yeah. the sort of level of clipped information, but yeah. genuinely on the whole, that's all I require. And yeah. I'll be quite content with that. Now, again, that's a that's me personally, and I can't obviously speak for all of my surgical colleagues, but uh, a definite question and um, asking am I, as the surgeon, able to provide the solution? And if the answer to that is no, that's absolutely fine. I don't mind that. And if the answer to it is yes, I'll just crack on and do it. Yeah. We're, We're very, to... very simple beasts, really. <laughs> yeah, I like that to be also that this isn't set in stone. Like, if you need to be more red, you can learn those red sort of yeah. behaviours. And, and uh, yeah. yeah, anyway. We, we, but, but you can. And yeah. I now approach pathology in a totally different way and yeah. with great success. And that literally was just, you know, five minute nugget of information that transformed my ability to do well by my patients, but also to stop me being more red. Because the more extreme our personality, we, we find the personality in others, the more extreme ours tends to become. And that helps nobody. So for anyone wondering what those colours mean, um, we should probably explain those those first. So, and, and Clara, what, have you done this training? So, so anyone who joins the BMJ gets put on this day course where you learn your colours. Uh, Maybe a slightly different system. I think that, well, there are four colours, red, green, um, was it yellow and, and blue? Uh, have you done that? I have, yeah. yeah. I'd, I'd actually already done, I did at medical school in my final year, Myers-Briggs. They, they meant okay. to do Myers-Briggs, which, which is, it, it's same, same, but different. Yeah. Um, it's a bit old, old hat. Now, red is, the, the colours is the... Yeah, I mean, I liked it. Um, yeah, they, and they, the way that they analyse it, analyse it, it makes it sound like you're kind of a specimen in the lab. Um, <laughs> the way they, they kind of go through it is it's like, what's your 
main personality bit and what do you go to when you're like stressed or mm. angry and so red is like a very typical surgeon it's very like outgoing fiery like enthusiastic loads of ideas blue is like very technical um so that's probably the pathologist uh, interestingly sarah said that gps she thought they were mostly blue but i would say they were green mm. generally because i don't know about you yeah Tom. yeah green. well i was green green Green, green yellow. Uh, no, no. I, yeah. I thought I was going to be really yellow, but no, I was green blue to my disappointment. But uh, oh, to be fair, I've seen your edits on, uh, <laughs> on work, so that makes a bit more sense. <laughs> so Very let's explain that. So, <laughs> so green is um, sort of like you want everything to be harmonious, don't you? Like if there's a group yeah. of people, you want everybody. Everybody has to be getting along really well, otherwise you're you're really not not in a good place. Uh, and and yeah, blue is uh, yeah. You, you you want to be very methodical and uh, yeah, make sure every word in the article is 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 correct. Uh, but then yellow is I suppose more more creatives, isn't it? Full of yeah, ideas. Yeah, yellow is as somebody who's so I've got a friend who's so strongly yellow, and as soon as I did that color thing, I was like, oh my goodness everything makes sense um we used to all go on holiday together and this guy would just always be like oh we can do this and we can do this and I was so frustrated with him because I'm like okay when are we going to do it how are we going to do it like let's and he'd be like no you don't need to worry about the practicalities so it's very like optimistic ideas creative um and yeah you kind of need like a red or a blue person to like rein those people in and like send them off in the right direction well, I think you need that. Yeah. Maybe they don't think. Yeah. Maybe they don't think you need that at all. Um, what, what do you think you you might be, Jenny? I mean, you have to do. You do these questions. You do like thirty questions, and it tells you. It's it's really like it's like sort of mind reading sort of thing, isn't it? Like clairvoyance. That, yeah, and, never, and you get this like <laughs> tarot. I've never yeah. actually done. I've never actually done this color test. I suspect I'm probably more of a green blue as well. Um, but I have to share my story about like my take on a surgeon personality oh go on yeah so i knew from an early <laughs> stage in medical school that i did not want to do surgery um the or is too cold for me and i really really find that uncomfortable but anyway um i feel I, I was forced because of timing and other electives to do an elective in um non-trauma emergency surgery um as a final year medical student and so we call that a sub i or a sub intern and um i joined right after um someone who like super super gung-ho like this person lived to be a surgeon and i was like i am family medicine i am not i hate being here right and the story that um that i got told was that the person before me was so desperate to prove that he was committed to surgery, that he wanted awesome letters of recommendation, that he stuck an NG tube down his own nose just to prove that he was like baller enough to be a surgeon. And to just like and he just like like did it. Like and the whole team was like, oh dude, like what are you what are you doing? Oh, and so the joke for the whole month that I was on this team was like, so when when are you gonna do it, Jenny? Like when are you when are you gonna end it yourself? And I was like, no, absolutely not. 
I mean, like, I feel like if somebody told me that story and I was on an interview panel and he was interviewing, I'd be like, that is the very reason I never want you to be a surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> like, that is, yeah, oh, God, people like that. Mm. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I had my head in my hands for most of that story <laughs> for the benefit of the non-visual medium, medium of podcast. <laughs> so anyway, so, well, yeah, a, l- a little bit like, little too happy to be interventionalist <laughs> yeah that's 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 very gung ho isn't it uh, uh okay i mean so the the thing that i found really useful about that 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 day course that we did what was this idea that you you can adapt to the person you're talking to so if you recognize and, and at the bmj you meant to put your colors you get these little yellow lego blocks which show, show other people what your colours are, so that when they come up to talk to you, they can uh, they can adapt their communication style. <laughs> uh, uh, it's really it's, it's so useful. So there's one or two reds. I suppose like you, Clara. Like I know I should be more direct and uh, stop beating around the bush, and that's useful to know, isn't it? I really liked Sarah's take on ask me a direct question, like ask me a, d- a definite question. And if I'm able to answer that question as a surgeon, then great. And also remember to mm. tell me if they're on anticoagulation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's obviously that's that's I think that's probably true of all. Like if you're calling somebody busy, like come with an outcome, come with like this is what I'm going to do and I think I should do. Uh, I think surgeons particularly love that when someone phones me up and says I've done X, Y and Z. This is what I think is going on. I'm not sure. Can you do why? I'm like, ah, oh, sweet. I love those conversations. <laughs> Call me more with them, please. <laughs> um, the one where they're like round the houses and people don't really know what they, people don't yeah. have even thought about what they want from me. Um, when I've got like 50 patients to see, mm. okay, it's a slight exaggeration, but a lot of patients to see. I'm like, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. I don't want, yeah, I get frustrated having to use my, brain space thinking about what somebody else might want me to do yeah. when I just want them to tell me well you reminded me of that that feeling when you're calling the the, the on call the surgical on call and you're just you're waiting <laughs> oh, for them to answer the bleep and you get that so nervous feeling like okay okay what what am I actually asking them I, I'm like okay let me find my inner <laughs> yes. inner inner red so they don't shout at me for being too vague <laughs> yes you're like planning what you're gonna say okay yeah <laughs> this person this condition this is this and my question is <laughs> Okay, I'm going to be very direct now and say we've come to the end of our time. We must end it here. <laughs> uh, thank you, Tom. I appreciate your directness. <laughs> thank you. And have you enjoyed being on the podcast on Deep Breath In, Clara? Oh, I've loved it. Please invite me back to speak to you okay. more. Well, we'll, have, we we'll discuss it. We'll build we'll, barriers. We'll consider it and have a think about it. And... <laughs> yeah, if you could send me a letter summarising your findings, I'd really appreciate that. <laughs> Well, uh, well, thank you to, to you, Clara, but also thank you to, to Sarah for uh, for that lovely interview. And uh, thank you as well, Jenny. See you next time. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Clara. Thanks, Jenny. Thanks, Tom. Enjoy your sleep, Jenny. <laughs> Thanks. I will. Yes, Jenny just yawned. It's about midnight where she is. Uh, uh, if you're enjoying Deep Breath In, uh, please uh, rate us on your podcast app. Um, tell a friend, tell a surgeon. Um, whatever but uh, 
and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode. Bye for now.